that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Tuesday, January 7th. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. This week is an exciting one for our consumer good aficionados. Joining me today over the phone to tell us why is Fool.com analyst Dan Klein. Dan, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. But before we get to that, it's also an exciting week because this is the first time you're sitting in the hosting chair. That is true. And it's lined up well with some good consumer news as well. But I'm really thankful both to be the new host for Industry Focus and to have you as my first guest. Thank you for having me. And as you alluded, I am in Las Vegas at the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, something I have been doing off and on since, I want to say 1995, but it might have been 1994. You've been going to CES almost as long as I've been alive, Dan. Uh, see, this comes up way too often on Industry Focus when we find a subtle way to put out how much older I am than all of you. <laughs> like, yeah. Now, I, I will point out that my first trip to CES, I was 19 and working for a company that produced the in-room television. And there used to literally be, we'd spend all day producing a half-hour television show, and then we would drive the tapes to all the different hotels, and the hotels would put them in on loop. That is, of course, no longer a thing. I can't imagine how much CES has changed since 1994 and 1995. It's absolutely stunning. So, so my first year here, I mean, it was overwhelming for me. I was 19. It was, you know, one of my first ever business trips, but it was a part of the Las Vegas Convention Center and it shared space with the, I forget the exact name of it, but an adult video expo. And the logic of that was at the time, the top consumer good product was the videotape. And of course, later the, the, comp, the, the, uh, the digital disc, uh, the DVD. So you were sort of putting two things that were very complementary next to each other. This is actually the first year where those two shows don't have happen concurrently. And that's partly because CES has gotten so big a team of 10 of us probably couldn't see all of it. It's It literally takes over the whole city. There's stuff at multiple convention centers, the whole Las Vegas convention center. We were at events at the Aria yesterday. Matt Frankel is at the Sands convention, where I'm going to join him later today. So it's really uh, gone to be a giant show. And some of the biggest players, uh, your Microsofts, your Apples, your Amazon, they may not be here as exhibitors, but they're very much here behind the scenes. We we chatted a little bit before the show started about how many people were there in Vegas for CES. I think you said what was it, one hundred seventy thousand? So so the population of the sw- the city swells by about one hundred seventy thousand. And Vegas is a city. You you've been here recently. It's obviously set up for a lot of people. They're used to huge mm. traffic. CES is the only time where if you're coming in today, the cab line at the airport might be forty five minutes. Like this is the only and I and I've been coming to Vegas three or four times a year for a very long long time for, for various shows, this is the only show that the city seems to notice. Um, you know, you might see traffic on New Year's or during the, the heart of March Madness, but this just becomes the entire city is overwhelmed. It's very difficult to get anywhere. A one-mile cab ride might take you 25 minutes. Um, so this pushes Vegas to its absolute capacity. I can't imagine what that scene looks like. And I do want to pick your brain more about CES, but before we dive into it, we have some other kind of big news coming out of the consumer goods industry this week. Uh, That's Yum! Brands, the parent company of brands like 
Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut, my favorite places to eat, um, they decided to acquire another brand into its mix. That brand is Habit Restaurants. And, and Dan, I'm sad to admit that this is actually not a brand that I was previously familiar with. So, Habit's a burger chain, and we have a lot of them in Florida. And they're often in a plaza with a Blaze Pizza, which is the, you know, you order it and they've made it, made it in five minutes pizza, uh, and sometimes with a Chipotle. So, I would say it markets itself as a fast, casual burger brand. And I didn't see this coming, but it's actually kind of a masterstroke. Because if you look at the KFC Taco Bell Pizza Hut, uh, triumvirate there, they're really lacking a burger brand. So this is a company in Yum that has all, all sorts of data and it can basically say, okay, we have locations in this food court. What are we losing to burger providers? Well, we could bring in the burger location here. Uh, so this is a, it's a relatively small purchase. They paid about $350 million, uh, about $14 a share, a, a $3 roughly premium over what it was trading at. And they get a brand that they can rapidly just plug into existing locations. They will know where to build standalones. Um, didn't know Habit for, was for sale, but this is a very smart move coming in and snapping it up. I have to admit, I think I was a little less thrilled, at least immediately when I heard this news, than you ha- seem to be. Uh, personally, when I think about burger chains, I mean, I just imagine it being a really saturated market. I think about the performance of companies like Shake Shack, uh, historically, and just the fact that they're competing both with sit-down burger restaurants and fast food. And then you have you know, the In-N-Outs, the Shake Shacks. I mean, the burger market's really saturated. That being said, it seems like people from Florida really love <laughs> Habit. <gasps> So, so I don't think it's just the. I, I think there's 15 chains that are about the same quality, and any of them would apply here. But if you look at what Yum is already selling, these are complementary products. So, family stops at a rest stop, and that rest stop previously had a Wendy's, a KFC, a Pizza Hut, and a Taco Bell, and now uh, over in the quadrant that has the Yum brand's products, they've added. Habit Grill to to one of their locations, to part of their locations. There's a lot of ability to be synergistic, whether it's with part of the menu, with the full menu, to, to know that, okay, this market, um, we could win market share if we offered burgers. They can obviously just ask customers, hey, you know, would your family be more likely to eat here if we had more choice? And I think sort of burger is the obvious hole. And I wouldn't want to launch a from scratch burger chain. There's too much competition. But a burger chain where I could leverage off existing customers for Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, KFC, that, that seems to me like a very logical fit. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't wait to try Habit Burger if I'm ever down in Florida. We, Austin and I, were actually in Vegas, and one of the analysts going with us had never tried In-N-Out Burger. And it was actually one of those things that we we had to go to when we were there in the locale, because it was so mind-blowing to us that Ari had never tried an In-N-Out Burger. So, is, is Habit Restaurants or is Habit Burger, is that something that I should try next time I'm in Florida? Is that that important? So, so here's the thing. No. I, I, I'll... I'll, I'll equate it to Shake Shack. Everyone built up Shake Shack to me as this amazing thing. And what Shake Shack is, is a decent burger for the price and a pretty good shake for the price. And I'll say the same thing about Habit. Like, It's not spectacular. You're not going to go, oh my god, I paid fast food prices and that was a $200 burger. You're going to go, hey, that was a better burger than I would normally expect at fast food. But I think that's in line with In-N-Out or Shake Shack or any of the 15 other chains that are trying to occupy this space. So this basically takes a company, Habit, that was in a tough position as a standalone. You know, A restaurant chain with an under $500 
million dollar market cap, hard to expand, hard to identify where to go, now joins a multi-billions, tens of thousands of locations company that can use all that location data to sort of be able to very smartly take this chain big very fast. I saw Austin potentially rolling his eyes there, or at least expressing some sort of doubt at your comments. I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Is Austin that big an in and out guy? No, like, the opposite, really. Um, I don't, I don't, wasn't a huge fan of in and out. It's okay, ooh. but the fries, like the okay, burger, the, fries are, the burger the fries fry combo, like it's got to be a good combo. The fries just kind of knock it down a notch. <laughs> I don't disagree there. Shake Shack, good fries. Five guys, good fries. Good hey, fries, better burger. I, I don't think anyone's going to the Yum! brands because they're best in class for what they do. Taco Bell is not the best in class. Pizza Hut is largely not pizza. Um, K- KFC, you could argue, maybe they have the best fried chicken for fast food. But in general, if Habit Burger is good enough, that speaks well to what Yum! has been doing. And then it becomes about uh, capacity, audience, location, ability to deliver, all of the technology you can leverage as a much larger company. You know, hey, three of the family wants... Taco Bell, one person wants. Habit Burger, one person wants. KFC, you can make that logistically work in a way three separate standalone chains couldn't. Well, I think I could... I disagree with some of those points, but I will be really excited to see what happens to Habit. And um, yeah, I do hope they expand some. I hope they take advantage of of Yum's brand scale and get up here to DC sometime. And honestly, I feel like I could probably talk about fast food all day, which is something a vegetarian probably shouldn't say, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, but I know that listeners want to get on to the exciting stuff coming out of CES. I know there is so much hype, so much excitement out there. Uh, what what are you seeing and, and how much of it is just hype to you? So one of the things I've learned having gone is the the real announcements have become less and less. Uh, when I was here a few years ago, that's when they first announced Sling TV. And that was somewhat revolutionary. It's going to be the first live streaming television at a low price. And since then, the announcements have gone down in sort of impact. And it's more about broad product categories. But a lot of what you'll see on TV, so your local news would be like, oh my god, at CES, there's a toilet that can tell you if you're sick. There are robots that can do all these different things. And there are. Those things are here. There's a $3,000 plush robot that's very lovable. It replaces, I don't know, a pet and a child. Like It seems like a pretty cool product. But is there ever really going to be a mass market release of a $3,000 huggable robot? Probably not. So a lot of what you're going to see on the like, this is the coolest stuff out of CES, it's much more pie in the sky. Uh, and the real stuff to look at is the sort of incremental changes. Samsung yesterday introduced a television that rotates so you can view it like an upright smartphone. Sounds silly, but given how we're experiencing some of our data, some of our information, that perspective makes sense. Uh, We went to a Qualcomm press conference where they, with some hype, talked about the first, it was a Lenovo 5G connected laptop. Well, that's going to happen. As 5G networks get built out, you're going to need dedicated hardware. But of course, you could buy a 5G connected laptop. You just can't do anything with it because there are no 5G networks. And in fact, there aren't even pricing parameters for how you might connect to those networks. So you really have to sort of dig through what's real and what's just sort of hypothetical. Yeah, your mention of the TV reminds me that last year at CES, I think there was, a, if I remember correctly, a ton of excitement around products like LG TVs that would 
do stuff like roll up into uh, boxes. So I guess you could bring them with you places. So, And I, I don't think that actually ended up happening in 2019. And I think they're back again in 2020 um, at CES. So are there any products that you actually think uh, consumers might have a chance of getting their hands on this year? Or is everything there just conceptual? No, I, I think it's much more the incrementally interesting products. So the last few years, one of the ongoing themes has been the sort of behind-the-scenes battle of Amazon and Apple and Google and everybody to get their digital assistance in other products. And I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of that, where whether it's something you're seeing, uh, you know, hey, lamp, uh, what time is it tomorrow? Uh, that, that's a terrible question. That makes no <laughs> sense. Uh, you know, hey, hey lamp, how far away is uh, the Venetian hotel? That, I think, is going to become very common, but you're also starting to see more Internet of Things connected devices where your smart device is doing things without your input. Uh, Maybe your your lamp is ordering a new battery, a new bulb from Amazon because the bulb has gone out. Um, that technology has been shown for years. It's start of moving into more reality. One of the things you see every year that's not practical is, you know, it's a smart refrigerator that can tell you when your milk has gone bad, when your eggs have spoiled. And the reality is no one will pay for that because you have a pretty good test for whether your milk has gone bad. That doesn't cost you thousands of dollars. But the idea that those things exist, you'll start to see a high end and you'll start to see things become the norm that were once fanciful. Smart TV used to be like, will this ever happen? And now it's really a question of, do I want it in the TV or am I going to buy this under $30 device to have it anyway? So there's a lot of practical stuff here. It's just not what's going to make the news. I I even express, I guess, some doubt about the interconnectedness of things that I think a lot of people feel like is coming sooner rather than later. When I think about uh, Amazon's Alexa device, it's probably the most ubiquitous uh, in-home smart system, if you will. People still largely don't use these types of consumer devices in their most effective ways. They mostly use them for listening to music, setting timers, uh, hearing weather. In reality, what I would imagine Amazon and others who are connected with them want them to do is purchase things, right? Hear your news. So, do you see people increasingly using connected devices? No. Well, I see them using connected devices, but I see them using them for what I do. You know, hey, Alexa, play some Bruce Springsteen. Um, Hey, Alexa, what time is it? Set a timer. Very basic things. We probably just set off a lot of people's Alexas with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have not made the major jump into even ordering is not so simple, uh, or phone calls, or things that should really be integrated. And that's absolutely the end game. But we're still in a turf war for just which devices will you have and how will you use them. And I think usage expansion will happen. I know that I will sometimes use a voice search on my television when I want to narrow down, you know, um, hey, Alexa, what episodes of Saturday Night Live do I have available? And it will bring up anything for free or for paid that I could watch in that genre. You're going to start to see creep where it becomes more useful and more integrated. And then you'll slowly see an expansion. But I don't know if full-on smart home will ever become something your average person wants because as much as it's cool to walk in and say, like, house, turn the lights on, start the toaster, make me a cup of coffee, none of those things are all that hard to do on their own. And there's an enormous amount of stuff here for that. Um, You know, if you want to smart anything, it's here. 
But the real innovations you're going to see are more going to be around smart health and taking things like connected fitness to the next level. And that's everything from the room full of, call them Peloton knockoffs, where it's, you know, it's Peloton for boxing, it's Peloton for kickboxing, it's Peloton for any sport you could think of. Um, And then you're going to start to see like, okay, your watch can now tell you your blood sugar is low. And these are real world things we're starting to see integrated. And I think that will probably be the biggest leap that that starts to slowly trickle out of this year's show. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because when I hear you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is Fitbit. And that was a trap that I fell into at about $14 or $15 a share, uh, when I really believed in the value of the information that Fitbit was going to collect on health and how valuable it would be for people who were Fitbit users to collect information about their health. And it was connected, right? It was connected through your body, it was connected through your app. And at some point, the value proposition was it would be connected to your healthcare provider, uh, your insurance provider, potentially. But none of that's really materialized. Uh, I wonder if healthcare is one of those things that people like to keep private. So I think on an aggregate basis, there's a lot of good things happening. Apple is figuring out heart disease trends and other things using aggregate data you could never have collected through surveys or studies or other methods. So we are seeing it on a gross level. I think we're also seeing it on an athletic performance level. I mean, I am by no means a high-performance athlete, but I use a Fitbit to track my steps and my uh, energy output and have I exercised enough today and water and things like that. Uh, and for someone like me who's making a, you know, a pretty strong effort to, uh, you know, to get in shape, which is something we've talked about, not you and I, but me and various hosts on different shows, uh, I'm willing to use some next-level stuff. I'd love for my watch to be able to tell me, hey, you legitimately are dehydrated. Go get some water. And I think those things are coming. And people, yes, they want control, but it's going to become like Teladoc, where it's just such a convenient service, you're maybe willing to look aside some of the privacy issues. I I agree with that. And anything that could make me uh, catalyze to be healthier in my life, especially drinking water, would probably be helpful for me. Uh, so when you think about what CES and the things you're you're seeing there and the excitement around new consumer products means for investors, you mentioned that Apple and Amazon, these big companies that have historically been great consumer goods uh, innovators, aren't there at the show. Is there really any actionable information? Is there really any meaning for investors in CES? So I think one of the things to look at as investors is what's the ongoing story for consumer goods? Let's forget technology for a second. The ongoing story for consumer goods, for retailers, is omni-channel and supply chain logistics. So there's a lot of hype that's coming out. You know, Uber showed off the it's it's Sky Taxi in partnership with Hyundai. It can fly. And we all know what the regulatory likelihood of flying Sky Taxis are, or even <laughs> drones, or even, you know, we've seen unmanned vehicles. But it's that sort of stuff in the fringes that you're seeing. The you know, you'll see robots at this show, and I have for the past 10 years, that do really cool stuff. You know, a, a standing robot that can make you a drink and vacuum and, I don't know, you know, babysit your kid. And that's great, but where have we seen robots? We've seen them on the floor in Walmart doing inventory. We've seen them at Stop and Shop, which is a regional grocery store chain, uh, scaring people. Uh, not really sure what they're robots. We see them in the back end doing order fulfillment for pickup and delivery. And a lot of that is in the fringes here at CES. And that's sort of where you should be watching. You know, what is going to help 
a you know a regional chain like say Publix, which has money but not all the money the way Amazon or Walmart does, what are they going to invest in to improve their logistics? And what is seen here that's sort of fanciful? There's an awful lot of drones here that is some way going to make the leap. And drones might not be delivering for a regional grocery chain, but they might be doing inventory in the warehouse or helping with theft control in you know portions of the store. So there's a lot of sort of stuff to take in, uh, and I'm, I'm here for another full day on the floor. Uh, but then in the weeks after this, you're going to start to see this trickle out of like, okay, everyone hyped up this laptop that can fold up into your pocket that cost $11,000 and no one will ever make. That's not that practical. But this electric scooter that can run for five hours is going to be super useful in warehouses moving things around. I made that up completely, but <laughs> it's sort of the the in the margins, delivery, supply chain, omni-channel, and all that stuff is here. It's just not as cool as you know a glove you can put on that lets you be like Iron Man. And it's really different than what we're hearing from the media today, too, because a lot of the excitement is from a consumer perspective. But what I'm hearing you say is that consumers are likely never going to see, at least not directly, at least not over the near to medium term, the fruits of the research and the development labor that have gone into CES. Instead, uh, it's going to be trickling down into niche uses in the back end. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I go back to. When you look at this show, there's literally a football field-sized area, or at least there has been in past years, that's just full of massage chairs. And the reality is, a massage chair is pretty good. You know, you spend $1,000, you buy a massage chair. A $10,000 massage chair might be able to do some amazing things, but the average person probably can't afford a massage chair that diagnoses their specific muscle problems, uh, can tell them you know if they've been eating incorrectly, and can help them study for the LSATs. Like those are these are not all necessary things. But CES will show sort of the limits, and there might be with certain things. Um, uses that we never foresaw coming. For years, electric scooters were shown as a personally owned mobile transportation idea. And now, of course, mobile scooters have become a, I don't want to say a menace, but you've walked around Alexandria. There's like seven different companies that have mobile scooters uh, and they're everywhere, but it wasn't the intended use. So I think you're going to see more stuff introduced at this show. You know, Maybe that technology that tells you if your eggs are bad will work better at bars and restaurants so we don't have to send John Taffer in to sell, to tell them that they're <laughs> serving spoiled food. You know, you, you'll see things like, you know, I have a Carrick Drinkworks. Uh, Carrick Drinkworks is like a K-cup, but it makes alcoholic beverages. You've seen things like that at CES for years, and they've filtered into the bar Matt Franklin and I went to last night where a robot arm made our very overpriced drink and it wasn't worth it at all. But it was a gimmick that probably started at a CES. Can a robot make drinks? It can, just not worth it. A world without John Taffer is a world I don't want to live in. Uh, but I do happen to think maybe there are some uses, right? So I'd be amiss if I didn't ask you about what you're seeing as it applies to AR especially. I know uh, VR has been one of those trends that really caught on, gosh, I don't know how long ago, five years plus ago, uh, and then really just didn't have a ton of consumer use despite consumer products being out there. How do you feel about AR? So, I find it pretty disappointing in that we, we went to a, a seminar, and I won't embarrass the people who were speaking, but they were celebrating 
some what I would call very minor marketing successes that got people to use AR or VR technology. They were still talking about Pokemon Go. And <sighs> I have to be honest, I'm like the last guy who still plays Pokemon Go, but I've never played with the AR. That adds absolutely nothing to it unless you want to post a screenshot of like, I'm at a funeral playing this game and look, Pikachu's on the coffin. Like it's not, it doesn't add to the game. So I think we're in a stagnation period where the technology has held up adoption because if if AR and VR did not require a weighty headset and, and I own a, an Oculus Quest, the Oculus Quest is fun to put on your head and do like, hey, I'm going to do a virtual roller coaster or I'm going to watch the boxing match from really close up. But it's not a practical thing for you to sit down at your desk and say, oh, hey, Dan and I later have a planning meeting. We're both going to put these headsets on and talk for 45 minutes so we can kind of pretend we're sitting at the same table. So I'm sure there's innovative AR and VR here, but there's absolutely a bottleneck that this isn't just like a simple pair of slip-on glasses or goggles or something that doesn't need the technology. And I, from what I saw of a bunch of industry leaders, I don't think they know where to go yet. So no Snapchat uh, sunglasses for you then? No. <laughs> like I mean <laughs> look, I love all this stuff. I'm a sucker. Like I I I will buy every new fast charger, every headset um, but putting on an Oculus to do sort of novelty things or, you know, PlayStation virtual reality, it's fun. It's not that fun and it's heavy. And look, I'm sure there's some lightweight things on the show floor. I'm sure there's some glasses, but they've been showing the same kind of stuff in these areas and the experiences have gotten better. The games are really fun, but there's nothing that makes me say, Hey, it's a good idea to go out and invest two, $300 in a headset. And I, I do think that that this will happen, but I think it will be more part of our phone or definitely less having to wear a separate piece of technology. I I do have one last question uh, for you, Dan. I think the last time you were on the Consumer Goods Industry Focus podcast, you talked about Black Friday and your experience last time you went out, how frustrated you were with the constantly breaking cheap $5 coffee makers. So, I have to ask, did you manage to find a better coffee maker at CES? So... <laughs> CES, I have not physically seen the coffee makers at CES. And that is another thing where there will be all sorts of experimental coffee makers. And the reality is we have a winner in the US. Kerrig, for what it's worth, has won that market. So I personally am an espresso guy. I have uh, an espresso machine at, at both houses and like the coffee a lot better than what a Kerrig can do. But I do think you're going to see innovation in the bar area. The Kerrig Drinkworks is a cool product, but it's very bulky. It's somewhat expensive. It's not going to appeal to too many people. And I do think you will see a march towards more of a soda stream type bar system where the price to entry is closer to $100 than it is $300. Um, I don't know that that technology is here, but I'm going to guess it probably is because the one of the areas that you actually see real change every year is making your home devices more convenient. I now have an air fryer slash toaster slash oven in my kitchen, and that was something that was sort of... Uh, technology at CES five or six years ago that you could tell was coming, but they were all separate devices at the time. So, as consumers, we should all be investing in our uh, kitchen equipment then, paying up for the air fryers and the coffee makers. I I think you want to look at the really smart multi-use things. I mean, you know, people love the, the Instapot, 
but part of the reason for that is it can do a bunch of different things and it's only one appliance. I am not as big a fan. I, I can never get the top to stick on right and for it to pressure cook. But I think you're going to want to look for a couple of things. Does, does a device solve multiple real problems at an affordable price? And then in the back of it, the sort of giant, you know, like, like the way the Emperor looms over the new Star Wars movie, the thing behind everything is 5G. Because when we have a real rollout of 5G, your ability to have laptops or phones or headsets or who knows what that do so much more becomes stronger. So it's one of those things that a lot of companies here talked about 5G, but you'd really have to talk to T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon, and what I've spoken to all of them about 5G, and actual rollout dates are, you know, there'll be some rollout this year, but it won't be meaningful. So there's this underlying current of when this happens, then that, but that's probably not in the next 12 months. Yeah, we'll be keeping an eye out for our 5G uh, Internet of Things connected devices, hopefully at CESs in the future. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great when we can get boots on the ground at shows like CES. It makes for a great experience. I I technically wore sneakers, but I'll count as boots (laughs) on the ground. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocusatfool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe over on iTunes or check out videos on YouTube. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass today. For Dan Klein, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on.